0: Chapters 7 through 9 of Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Viking 7 The outside view screen, which had been vacantly gray for over three thousand hours, was now a vertiginous swirl of color, the indescribable color of a collapsing hyperspatial field. No two observers ever saw it alike, and no imagination could vision the actuality. Trask found that he was holding his breath. So, he noticed, was Otto Harkiman beside him. It was something, evidently, that nobody got used to. Even Guat Kirby, the astrogator, was sitting with his pipe clenched in his mouth, staring at the screen. Then, in an instant, the stars, which had literally not been there before, filled the screen with a blaze of splendor against the black velvet backdrop of normal space. Dead in the center, brighter than all the rest, Ertado's star, the sun of Tanith, burned yellowly. The light from it was ten hours old. Pretty good, Guat," Harkiman said, picking up his cup. Good, Kahena, it was perfect, somebody else said. Kirby was relighting his pipe. Oh, I suppose it'll have to do, he grudged around the stem. He had gray hair and an untidy mustache, and nothing was ever quite good enough to satisfy him. I could have made it a little closer. Need three micro-jumps now, and I'll have to cut the last one pretty fine. Now don't bother me!' He began punching buttons for data and fiddling with set-screws and verniers. For a moment in the screen Trask could see the face of Andre Dunnan. He blinked it away and reached for his cigarettes, and put one in his mouth wrong end, too. When he reversed it and snapped his lighter, he saw that his hand was trembling. Otto Harkeman must have seen that, too. "'Take it easy, Lucas,' he whispered. "'Keep your optimism under control. We only think he might be here.' "'I'm sure he is. He has to be.' "'No, that was the way Dunnan himself thought. Let's be sane about this.' "'We have to assume he is. If we do, and he isn't, it's a disappointment. If we don't, and he is—' It's a disaster. Others, it seemed, thought the same way. The battle station's board was a solid blaze of red light for full combat readiness. All right, Kirby said, jumping. Then he twisted the red handle to the right and shoved it in, viciously. Again the screen boiled with colored turbulence. Again dark and mighty forces stalked through the ship like demons in a sorcerer's tower. The screen turned featureless gray as the pickup stared blindly into some dimensionless no-place. Then it convulsed with color again, and this time Urtado's star, still in the center, was a coin-sized disk, with little sparks of its seven planets scattered around it. Tanith was the third, the inhabitable planet of a G-class system usually was. It had a single moon, barely visible in the telescopic screen, five hundred miles in diameter and fifty thousand off-planet. You know, Kirby said, as though he was afraid to admit it, that wasn't too bad. I think we can make it in one more micro-jump. Sometime, Trask supposed he'd be able to use the expression micro about a distance of fifty-five million miles, too. What do you think about it? Harkeman asked him, as deferentially as though seeking expert guidance instead of examining his apprentice. Where should Guat put us? As close as possible, of course. That would be a light second, at the least. If the Nemesis came out of hyperspace any closer to anything the size of Tanith, the collapsing field itself would kick her back. We have to assume Dunnan's been there at least nine hundred hours. By that time, he could have put in a detection station, and maybe missile launchers on the Moon. The Enterprise carries four pinnaces, the same as the Nemesis. In his place, I'd have at least two of them on off-planet patrol. So let's accept it that we'll be detected as soon as we come out of the last jump, and come out with the Moon directly between us and the planet. If it's occupied, we can knock it off on the way in. A lot of captains would try to come out with the moon massed off by the planet, Harkeman said. Would you? The big man shook his tousled head. No. If they have launches on the moon, they could launch at us in a curve around the planet, by data relayed from the other side, and we'd be at a disadvantage replying. Just go straight in. You hearing this, Squat? Yeah, it makes sense. Sort of. Now stop pestering me. Charles. look here a minute. The normal space astrogator conferred with him. Alvin Carford, the executive officer, joined them. Finally, Kirby pulled out the big red handle, twisted it, and said, All right, jumping. He shoved it in. I suppose I cut it too fine. Now we'll get kicked back half a million miles. The screen convulsed again. When it cleared, the third planet was directly in the center. Its small moon, looking almost as large, was a little above and to the right, sunlit on one side and planet lit on the other. Kirby locked the red handle, gathered up his tobacco and lighter and things from the ledge, and pulled down the cover of the instrument console, locking it. All yours, Charles, he told Renner. Eight hours to atmosphere. Renner said. That's if we don't have to waste a lot of time shooting up Junior there. Van Larch was looking at the moon in the six-hundred-power screen. I don't see anything to shoot. Five hundred miles, one planet-buster, or four or five thermonuclears," he said. It wasn't right, Trask thought indignantly. Minutes ago, Tanith had been six and a half billion miles away seconds ago fifty-odd million, and now a quarter of a million, and looking close enough to touch in the screen. It would take them eight hours to reach it. Why on hyperdrive you could go forty-eight trillion miles in that time? Well, it took a man just as long to walk across a room today as it had taken Pharaoh the First, or Homo Sape. In the telescopic screen, Tanith looked like any picture of any Terra-type planet from space, with cloud-blurred contours of seas and continents and a vague mottling of gray and brown and green, topped at the pole by an ice cap. None of the surface features, not even the major mountain ranges or rivers, were yet distinguishable. But Harkeman and Charles Renner and Alvin Carford and the other old hands seemed to recognize it. Carford was talking by phone to Paul Koroff, the signals and detection officer, who could detect nothing from the moon, and nothing that was getting through the Van Allen belt from the planet. Maybe they'd guessed wrong at that. Maybe Dunnan hadn't gone to Tanneth at all. harkerman who had the knack of putting himself to sleep at will, with some sixth or nth sense posted as a sentry, leaned back in his chair and closed his eyes. Trask wished he could, too. It would be hours before anything happened, and until then he needed all the rest he could get. He drank more coffee, chain-smoked cigarettes. He rose and prowled about the command room, looked at screens. Signals and detection was getting a lot of routine stuff. Van Allen count, micrometeor count, surface temperature, gravitation field strength. Radar and scanner echoes. He went back to his chair and sat down, staring at the screen image. The planet didn't seem to be getting any closer at all, and it ought to. They were approaching at better-than-escape velocity. He sat and stared at it. He woke with a start. The screen image was much larger now. River courses and shadow lines of mountains were clearly visible. It must be early autumn in the northern hemisphere. There was snow down to the sixtieth parallel, and a belt of brown was pushing south against the green. Harkeman was sitting up, eating lunch. By the clock it was four hours later. "'Have a good nap?' he asked. "'We're picking up stuff now. Radio and screen signals. Not much, but some. The locals wouldn't have learned enough for that in the five years since I was here. We didn't stay long enough, for one thing.' On de-civilized planets that were visited by space Vikings, the locals picked up bits and scraps of technology very quickly. In the four months of idleness and long conversations while they were in hyperspace, he had heard many stories confirming that. But from the level to which Tanith had sunk, radio and screen communication in five years was a little too much of a jump. "'You didn't lose any men, did you?' "'That happened frequently.' Men who took up with local women. Men who had made themselves unpopular with their shipmates. Men who just liked the planet and wanted to stay. They were always welcomed by the locals for what they could do and teach. No, we weren't there long enough for that. Only three hundred and fifty hours. This we're getting is outside stuff. Somebody's there beside the locals. Dunnan he looked again at the battle station's board it was still uniformly red-lighted everything was on full combat ready he summoned the mess robot selected a couple of dishes and began to eat after the first mouthful he called to alvin carford is paul getting anything new he asked carford checked a little contra-gravity field distortion effect it was still too far to be sure he went back to his lunch he had finished it and was lighting a cigarette over his coffee, when a red light flashed and a voice from one of the speakers shouted, "'Detection! Detection from planet! Radar and micro-ray!' Carford began talking rapidly into a handphone. Harkeman unhooked one beside him and listened. "'Coming from a definite point, about twenty-fifth north parallel,' he said, aside. "'Could be from a ship hiding against the planet.' There's nothing at all on the moon. They seemed to be approaching the planet more and more rapidly. Actually, they weren't. The ship was decelerating to get into an orbit, but the decreasing distance created the illusion of increasing speed. The red lights flashed once more. Ship detected! Just outside atmosphere! Coming around the planet from the west! Is she the Enterprise? Can't tell yet. Carford said, and then cried, "'There she is, in the screen! That spark, about thirty degrees north, just off the west side!' Aboard her, too, voices from speakers would be shouting, "'Ship detected!' And the battle-station board would be blazing red. And Andre Dunnan at the command desk. "'She's calling us!' That was Paul Koroff's voice, out of the squawk-box on the desk. Standard Sword World impulse code. Interrogative. What ship are you? Informative. Her screen combination. Request. Please communicate. All right, Harkiman said. Let's be polite and communicate. What's your screen combination? Korif's voice gave it, and Harkiman punched it out. The communication screen in front of them lit at once. Trask shoved over his chair beside Harkiman's, his hands tightening on the arms. Would it be Dunnan himself, and what would his face show when he saw who confronted him out of his own screen? It took him an instant to realize that the other ship was not the Enterprise at all. The Enterprise was the Nemesis Twin, her command room was identical with his own. This one was different in arrangements and fittings. The Enterprise was a new ship, this one was old and had suffered for years at the hands of a slack captain and a slovenly crew. And the man who sat facing him in the screen was not Andre Dunnan, or any man he'd ever seen before. A dark-faced man, with an old scar that ran down one cheek from a little below the eye. He had curly black hair on his head and on a V of chest exposed by an open shirt. There was an ashtray in front of him and a thin curl of smoke rose from a cigar in it, and coffee steamed in an ornate but battered silver cup beside it. He was grinning gleefully. "'Well, Captain Harkeman of the Enterprise, I believe. Welcome to Tanith. Who's the gentleman with you? He isn't the Duke of Wardshaven, is he?' 8 He glanced quickly at the showback over the screen to assure himself that his face was not betraying him. Beside him, Otto Harkiman was laughing. "'Why, Captain Valkenhayn, this is an unexpected pleasure. That's the space scourge you're in, I take it? What are you doing here on Tanith?' A voice from one of the speakers shouted that a second ship had been detected coming over the North Pole. The dark-faced man in the screen smirked quite complacently. "'That's Garvin Spasso in the Lamia,' he said. "'And what we're doing here, we've taken this planet over. We intend keeping it, too.' "'Well, so you and Garvin have teamed up. You two were just made for one another. And you have a little planet all your very own. I'm so happy for both of you.' "'What are you getting out of it, beside poultry?' The other's self-assurance started to slip. He slapped it back into place. "'Don't kid me. We know why you're here. Well, we got here first. Tanith is our planet. You think you can take it away from us?' "'I know we could, and so do you,' Harkeman told him. "'We outgun you and Spasso together.' why, a couple of our pinnaces could knock the Lamia apart. The only question is, do we want to bother?" By now he had recovered from his surprise, but not from his disappointment. If this fellow thought the Nemesis was the Enterprise—before he could check himself, he had finished the thought aloud—then the Enterprise didn't come here at all. The man in the screen started. Isn't that the Enterprise you're in? Oh, no! "'Pardon my remissness, Captain Valkenhayn,' Harkeman apologized, "'this is the nemesis. The gentleman with me, Lord Lucas Trask, is owner aboard, for whom I am commanding. Lord Trask, Captain Boke Valkenhayn of the Space Scourge. Captain Valkenhayn is a space viking.' He said that as though expecting it to be disputed. "'So, I am told, is his associate, Captain Spasso.' whose ship is approaching. You mean to tell me that the Enterprise hasn't been here?' Valkenhayn was puzzled, slightly apprehensive. "'You mean the Duke of Wardshaven has two ships?' "'As far as I know, the Duke of Wardshaven hasn't any ships,' Harkeman replied. "'This ship is the property and private adventure of Lord Trask. The Enterprise, for which we are looking, he is owned and commanded by one Andre Dunnan. The man with the scarred face and hairy chest had picked up his cigar and was puffing on it mechanically. Now he took it out of his mouth, as though he wondered how it had gotten there in the first place. But isn't the Duke of Wardshaven sending a ship here to establish a base? That was what we'd heard. We heard you'd gone from Flamberge to Graham to command it for him. Where did you hear this? And when? On Hoth. That'd be about two thousand hours ago. A Gilgamesher brought the news from Chittle. Well, considering it was fifth or sixth hand, your information was good enough when it was fresh. It was a year and a half old when you got it, though. How long have you been here on teneth? About a thousand hours. Harkeman clucked sadly at that. Pity you wasted all that time. Well, it was nice talking to you, Boak. Say hello to Garvin for me when he comes up. You mean you're not staying? Valkenhayn was horrified. An odd reaction for a man who had just been expecting a bitter battle to drive them away. You're just spacing right out again? Harkeman shrugged. Do we want to waste time here, Lord Trask? The Enterprise has obviously gone somewhere else. She was still in hyperspace when Captain Valkenhayn and his accomplice arrived here. Is there anything worth staying for? That seemed to be the reply Harkiman was expecting. Beside poultry, that is. Harkiman shook his head. This is Captain Valkenhayn's planet, his and Captain Spasso's. Let them be stuck with it. But look, this is a good planet. There's a big local city maybe ten or twenty thousand people, temples and palaces and everything. Then there are a couple of old Federation cities. The one we're at is in good shape, and there's a big spaceport. We've been doing a lot of work on it, and the locals won't give you any trouble. All they have is spears and a few crossbows and matchlocks. I know. I've been here. Well, could we make some kind of a deal?' Valkenhayn asked. A mendicant whine was beginning to creep into his voice. "'I can get Garvin on screen, and switch him over to your ship.' "'Well, we have a lot of Sword World merchandise aboard,' Harkeman said. "'We could make you good prices on some of it. How are you fixed for robotic equipment?' "'But aren't you going to stay here?' Valkenhayn was almost in a panic. "'Listen, suppose I talk to Garvin, and we all get together on this?' Just excuse me for a minute." As soon as he had blanked out, Harkiman threw back his head and guffawed, as though he had just heard the funniest and bawdiest joke in the galaxy. Trask himself didn't feel like laughing. "'The humor escapes me,' he admitted. He came here on a fool's errand. "'I'm sorry, Lucas,' harkerman was still shaking with mirth. "'I know it's a letdown. But that pair of chiseling chicken thieves! I could almost pity them if it weren't so funny! He laughed again. You know what their idea was? Trask shook his head. Who are they? What I call them, a couple of chicken thieves. They raid planets like Set and Hertha and Melkarth, where the locals haven't anything to fight with, or anything worth fighting for. I didn't know they'd teamed up, but that figures. Nobody else would team up with either of them. What must have happened, this story of Duke Angus' Tanneth adventure must have filtered out to them, and they thought that if they got here first I'd think it was cheaper to take them in than run them out. I probably would have, too. They do have ships, of a sort, and they do raid, after a fashion. But now there isn't going to be any tenth base, and they have a no-good planet and they're stuck with it. Can't they make anything out of it themselves? Like what? Harkiman hooted. They have no equipment and they have no men, not for a job like that. The only thing they can do is space out and forget it. We could sell them equipment. We could, if they had anything to use for money they haven't. One thing, we do want to let down and give the men a chance to walk on ground and look at a sky for a while. The girls here aren't too bad, either," Harkaman said. As I remember, some of them even take a bath now and then. "'That's the kind of news of Dunnan we're going to get. By the time we'd get to where he'd been reported, he'd be a couple of thousand light-years away,' he said disgustedly. "'I agree.' We ought to give the men a chance to get off the ship here. We can stall this pair along for a while, and we won't have any trouble with them. The three ships were slowly converging toward a point point fifteen thousand miles off planet and over the Sunset Line. The space scourge bore the device of a mailed fist clutching a comet by the head. It looked more like a whisk-broom than a scourge, The Lamia bore a coiled snake with the head, arms, and bust of a woman. Balkenhayn and Spasso were taking their time about screening back, and he began to wonder if they weren't maneuvering the nemesis into a cross-fire position. He mentioned this to Harkeman and Alvin Carford. They both laughed. "'Just holding ship's meetings,' Carford said. "'They'll be yakking back and forth for a couple of hours yet.' "'Yes.' "'Valkenhayn and Spasso don't own their ships,' Harkiman explained. "'They've gone in debt to their crews for supplies and maintenance till everybody owns everything in common. The ships look like it, too. They don't even command, really. They just preside over elected command councils.' Finally they had both of the more or less commanders on screen. Valkenhayn had zipped up his shirt and put on a jacket. Garvin Spasso was a small man, partly bald. His eyes were a shade too close together, and his thin mouth had a bitterly crafty twist. He began speaking at once. "'Captain, Boak tells me you say you're not here in the service of the Duke of Wardshaven at all,' he said, aggrievedly. "'That's correct,' Harkaman said. "'We came here because Lord Trask thought another Graham ship, the Enterprise, would be here.' Since she isn't, there's no point in our being here. We do hope, though, that you won't make any difficulty about our letting down and giving our men a couple of hundred hours' liberty. They've been in hyperspace for three thousand hours. See? Spasso clamored. He wants to trick us into letting him land! Captain Spasso, Trask cut in. Will you please stop insulting everybody's intelligence, your own included? Spasso glared at him, belligerently but hopefully. "'I understand what you thought you were going to do here. You expected Captain Harkeman here to establish a base for the Duke of Wardshaven. And you thought, if you were here ahead of him and in a posture of defense, that he take you into the Duke's service rather than waste ammunition and risk damage and casualties wiping you out. Well, I'm very sorry, gentlemen.' Captain Harkeman is in my service, and I'm not in the least interested in establishing a base on Tanith." Valkenhayn and Spasso looked at each other. At least in the two side-by-side screens their eyes shifted, each to the other's screen in his own ship. "'I get it,' Spasso cried suddenly. "'There's two ships, the Enterprise and this one. The Duke of Wardshaven fitted out the Enterprise." and somebody else fitted out this one. They both want to put in a base here.' That opened up a glorious vista. Instead of merely capitalizing on their nuisance value, they might find themselves holding the balance of power in a struggle for the planet. All sorts of profitable perfidies were possible. "'Why, sure you can land, Otto,' Valkenhayn said. "'I know what it's like to be three thousand hours in hyper myself.' "'You're at this old city, with the two tall tower buildings, aren't you?' Harkiman asked. He looked up at the viewscreen. "'Ought to be about midnight there now. How's the spaceport? When I was here it was pretty bad.' "'Oh, we've been fixing it up. We've got a big gang of locals working for us.' The city was familiar, from Otto Harkiman's descriptions and from the pictures Van Larch had painted during the long jump from Graham. As they came in, it looked impressive, spreading for miles around the twin buildings that spired almost three thousand feet above it, with a great spaceport like an eight-pointed star at one side. Whoever had built it, in the sunset splendor of the old Terran Federation, must have done so, confident that it would have become a metropolis of a populous and prospering world. Then the sun of the Federation had gone down, Nobody knew what had happened on Tanith after that, but evidently none of it had been good. At first, the two towers seemed as sound as when they had been built. Gradually, it became apparent that one was broken at the top. For the most part, the smaller buildings scattered widely around them were standing, though here and there mounds of brush-grown rubble showed where some had fallen in. The spaceport looked good a central octagon mass of buildings, the landing berths and beyond the triangular areas of airship docks and warehouses. The central building was outwardly intact, and the ship berths seemed clear of wreckage and rubble. By the time the nemesis was following the space scourge and the lamia down, towed by her own pinnaces, the illusion that they were approaching a living city had vanished. The inner spaces between the buildings were choked with forest growth broken by a few small fields and garden plots. At one time there had been three of the high buildings, literally vertical cities in themselves. Where the third had stood was a glazed crater, with a ridge of fallen rubble lying away from it. Somebody must have landed a medium missile, about twenty kilotons, against its base. Something of the same sort had scored on the far edge of the spaceport and one of the eight arrowheads of docks and warehouses was an indistinguishable slag-pile. The rest of the city seemed to have died of neglect rather than violence. It certainly hadn't been bombed out. Harkeman thought most of the fighting had been done with sub-neutron bombs, or Omega-ray bombs, that killed people without damaging the real estate. Or bioweapons. A man made plague that had gotten out of control and all but depopulated the planet. It takes an awful lot of people working together at an awful lot of jobs to keep a civilization running. Smash the installations and kill the top technicians and scientists, and the masses don't know how to rebuild and go back to stone hatchets. Kill off enough of the masses, and even if the planet and the know how is left, there's nobody to do the work. I've seen planets that de-civilized both ways. Tanith, I think, is one of the latter. That had been during one of the long after-dinner bull sessions on the way out from Graham. Somebody, one of the noble gentleman adventurers who had joined the company after the piracy of the Enterprise and the murder, had asked, But some of them survived. Don't they know what happened? In the old times there were sorcerers. They built the old buildings by wizard arts. Then the sorcerers fought among themselves and went away," Harkeman said. That's all they know about it. You could make any kind of an explanation out of that. As the pinnaces pulled and nudged the nemesis down to her berth, he could see people, far down on the spaceport floor, at work. Either Valkenhayn and Spasso had more men than the size of their ships indicated, or they had gotten a lot of locals to work for them. More than the population of the moribund City, at least as Harkeman remembered it. There had been about five hundred in all. They lived by mining the old buildings for metal, and trading metalwork for food and textiles and powder and other things made elsewhere. It was accessible only by ox-carts traveling a hundred miles across the plains. It had been built by a contragravity-using people with utter disregard for natural travel and transportation routes. "'I don't envy the poor buggers,' Harkeman said, looking down at the ant-like figures on the spaceport floor. Boke Valkenhayn and Garvin Spasso have probably made slaves of the lot of them. If I was really going to put in a base here, I wouldn't thank that pair for the kind of public relations work they've been doing among the locals. 9. That was just about the situation. Spasso and Valkenhayn and some of their officers met them on the landing stage of the big building in the middle of the spaceport, where they had established quarters. Entering and going down a long hallway, they passed a dozen men and women gathering up rubbish from the floor, with shovels and with their hands, and putting it into a lifter-skid. Both sexes wore shapeless garments of coarse cloth like ponchos, and flat-soled sandals. Watching them was another local in a kilt, buskins, and a leather jerkin. He wore a short sword on his belt and carried a wickedly thronged whip. He also wore a space Viking combat helmet, painted with the device of Spasso's lamia. He bowed as they approached, putting a hand to his forehead. After they had passed, they could hear him shouting at the others, and the sound of whip blows. You can make slaves out of people, and some will always be slave-drivers. They will bow to you and then take it out on the others." Harkeman's nose was twitching, as though he had a bit of rotten fish caught in his mustache. We have about eight hundred of them. There were only three hundred that were any good for work here. We gathered the rest up at villages along the big river, Spasso was saying. "'How do you get food for them?' Harkaman asked. "'Or don't you bother?' "'Oh, we gather that up all over,' Valkenhain told him. "'We send parties out with landing craft. They'll let down on a village, run the locals out, gather up what's around, and bring it here. Once in a while they put up a fight, but the best they have is a few crossbows and some muzzle-loading muskets. When they do, we burn the village and machine-gun everybody we see.' That's the stuff, Harkeman approved. If the cow doesn't want to be milked, just shoot her. Of course, you don't get much milk out of her again, but— The room to which their hosts guided them was at the far end of the hall. It had probably been a conference room or something of the sort, and originally it had been paneled, but the paneling had long ago vanished. Holes had been dug here and there in the walls, and he remembered having noticed that the door was gone and the metal groove in which it had slid had been pried out. There was a big table in the middle, and chairs and couches covered with colored spreads. All the furniture was hand-made, cunningly pegged together and highly polished. On the walls hung trophies of weapons, thrusting spears and throwing spears, crossbows and quarrels, and a number of heavy guns, crude things but carefully made. "'Pick up all this stuff off the locals?' Harkeman asked. "'Yes. We got most of it at a big town down at the forks of the river,' Valkenhayn said. "'We shook it down a couple of times. That's where we recruited the fellows we're using to boss the workers.' Then he picked up a stick with a leather-covered knob and beat on a gong, bawling for wine. A voice somewhere replied, "'Yes, master, I come.' and in a few moments a woman entered, carrying a jug in either hand. She was wearing a blue bathrobe several sizes too large for her, instead of the poncho things the slaves in the hallway wore. She had dark brown hair and gray eyes. If she had not been so obviously frightened, she would have been beautiful. She set the jugs on the table and brought silver cups from a chest against the wall. When Spasso dismissed her, she went out hastily. I suppose it's silly to ask if you are paying these people anything for the work they do, or for the things you take from them," Harkiman said. From the way the Space Scourge and the Lamia people laughed, it evidently was. Harkiman shrugged. "'Well, it's your planet. Make any kind of a mess out of it you want to.' "'You think we ought to pay them?' Spasso was incredulous. "'Damn bunch of savages!' They aren't as savage as the Zochitl locals were when Halta Clear took it over. You've been there. You've seen what Prince Victor does with them now. We haven't got the men or equipment they have on Xochitl, Valkenhayn said. We can't afford to coddle the locals. You can't afford not to, Harkaman told him. You have two ships here. You can only use one for raiding. The other will have to stay here to hold the planet.' If you take them both away, the locals, whom you have been studiously antagonizing, will swamp whoever you leave behind. And if you don't leave anybody behind, what's the use of having a planetary base?" "'Well, why don't you join us?' Spasso finally came out with it. "'With our three ships, we could have a real thing here!' Harkeman looked at him inquiringly. "'The gentlemen,' Trask said, "'are putting this wrongly.' They mean, why don't we let them join us?" "'Well, if you want to put it like that,' Valkenhayn conceded. "'We'll admit your nemesis would be the big end of it, but why not? Three ships, we could have a real base here. Nicky Gratham's father only had two when he started on Jageneth, and look what the Grathams got there now!' "'Are we interested?' Parkaman asked. Not very, I'm afraid. Of course, we've just landed. Tanith may have great possibilities. Suppose we reserve decision for a while and look around a little. There were stars in the sky, and for good measure a sliver of moon on the western horizon. It was only a small moon, but it was close. He walked to the edge of the landing stage, and Elaine was walking with him. The noise from inside, where the Nemesis crew were feasting with those of the Lamia and Space Scourge, grew fainter. To the south a star moved, one of the pinnaces they had left on off-planet watch. There was firelight far below, and he could hear singing. Suddenly he realized that it was the poor devils of locals whom Valkenhayn and Spasso had enslaved. Elaine went away quickly. "'Have your fill of space-viking glamour, Lucas?' He turned. It was Baron Rathmore, who had come along to serve for a year or so, and then hitch a ride home from some base planet and cash in politically on having been with Lucas Trask. "'For the moment I'm told that this lot aren't typical. I hope not. They're a pack of sadistic brutes and piggish along with it. Well, brutality and bad manners I can condone, but Spasso and Valkenhayn are a pair of ignominious little crooks, and stupid along with it. If Andre Dunnan had gotten here ahead of us, he might have done one good thing in this wretched life. I can't understand why he didn't come here." "'I think he still will,' Rathmore said. "'I knew him, and I knew Neville Orme.' Orm's ambitious, and Dunnan's insanely vindictive. He broke off with a sour laugh. I'm telling you that! Why didn't he come here directly, then? Maybe he doesn't want a base on Tanith. That would be something constructive. Dunnan's a destroyer. I think he took that cargo of equipment somewhere and sold it. I think he'll wait till he's fairly sure the other ship is finished. Then he'll come in and shoot the place up. The way—he bit off that abruptly—the way he did my wedding. I think of it all the time. The next morning he and harkerman took an air-car and went to look at the city at the forks of the river. It was completely new, in the sense that it had been built since the collapse of Federation civilization and the loss of civilized technologies. It was huddled on a long, irregularly triangular mound evidently to raise it above flood level. Generations of labor must have gone into it. To the eyes of a civilization using contragravity and powered equipment it wasn't at all impressive. Fifty to a hundred men with adequate equipment could have gotten the thing up in a summer. It was only by forcing himself to think in terms of spadeful after spadeful of Earth, cartload after cartload creaking behind straining beasts, timber after timber, cut with axes and dressed with adzes, stone after stone and brick after brick that he could appreciate it. They even had it walled, with a palisade of tree-trunks behind which earth and rocks had been banked, and along the river were docks, at which boats were moored. The locals simply called it Trade Town. As they approached a big gong began booming and a white puff of smoke was followed by the thud of a signal gun. The boats, long canoe-like craft and round-bowed, many-oared barges, put out hastily into the river. Through binoculars they could see people scattering from the surrounding fields, driving cattle ahead of them. By the time they were over the city nobody was in sight. They seemed to have developed a pretty fair air-raid warning system in the nineteen hundred-odd hours in which they had been exposed to the figurative mercies of Boak Valkenhayn and Garvin Spasso. It hadn't saved them entirely. A section of the city had been burned, and there were evidences of shelling. Light, chemical-explosive stuff. This city was too good a cow for even those two to kill before the milking was over. They circled slowly over it at a thousand feet. When they turned away, black smoke began rising from what might have been pottery works or brick kilns on the outskirts. Something resinous had evidently been fed to the fires. Other columns of black smoke began rising across the countryside, on both sides of the river. "'You know, these people are civilized, if you don't limit the term to contragravity and nuclear energy,' Harkeman said. They have gunpowder, for one thing, and I can think of some rather impressive old Terran civilizations that didn't have that much. They have an organized society, and anybody who has that is starting toward civilization. I hate to think of what'll happen to this planet if Spasso and Valkenhayn stay here long. Might be a good thing in the long run. Good things in the long run are often tough while they're happening. I know what'll happen to Spasso and Valkenhayn, though. They'll start de-civilizing themselves. They'll stay here for a while, and when they need something they can't take from the locals, they'll go chicken-stealing after it. But most of the time they'll stay here lording it over their slaves, and finally their ships will wear out and they won't be able to fix them. Then sometime the locals'll jump them when they aren't watching and wipe them out." but in the meantime the locals'll learn a lot from them. They turned the air-car west again along the river. They looked at a few villages. One or two dated from the Federation period. They had been plantations before whatever it was had happened. More had been built within the past five centuries. A couple had recently been destroyed, in punishment for the crime of self-defense. "'You know,' he said at length, I'm going to do everybody a favor. I'm going to let Spasso and Valkenhayn persuade me to take this planet away from them. Harkeman, who was piloting, turned sharply. You crazy or something? When somebody makes a statement you don't understand, don't tell him he's crazy. Ask him what he means. Who said that? On target, Harkeman grinned. What do you mean, Lord Trask? I can't catch Dunnan by pursuit. I'll have to get him by interception. You know the source of that quotation, too. This looks to me like a good place to intercept him. When he learns I have a base here, he'll hit it sooner or later. And even if he doesn't, we can pick up more information on him, when ships start coming in here, than we would batting around all over the old Federation." Harkeman considered for a moment, then nodded. Yes, if we could set up a base like Nergal or za he agreed. There'll be four or five ships, Space Vikings, Traders, Gilgameshers, and so on, on either of those planets all the time. If we had the cargo Dunnan took to space in the Enterprise, we could start a base like that. But we haven't anything near what we need, and you know what Spasso and Valkenhayn have. We can get it from Graham. As it stands, the investors in the Tanneth Adventure, from Duke Angus down, lost everything they put into it. If they're willing to throw some good money after bad, they can get it back, and a handsome profit to boot. And there ought to be planets above the rowboat and ox-cart level not too far away, that could be rated for a lot of things we'd need. That's right. I know of half a dozen within five hundred light-years. They won't be the kind Spasso and Valkenhayn are in the habit of raiding, though. And besides machinery, we can get gold, and valuable merchandise that could be sold on Gram. And if we could make a go of it, you'd go farther hunting Dunnan by sitting here on Tanith than by going looking for him. That was the way we used to hunt marsh pigs on Colada when I was a kid. Just find a good place and sit down and wait.' They had Valkenhayn and Spasso aboard the Nemesis for dinner. It didn't take much guiding to keep the conversation on the subject of Tanith and its resources, advantages, and possibilities. Finally, when they had reached brandy and coffee, Trask said idly, I believe, together, we could really make something out of this planet. That's what we've been telling you all along, Spasso broke in eagerly. This is a wonderful planet! It could be. All it has now is possibilities. We'd need a spaceport, for one thing." "'Well, what's this here?' Valkenhayn wanted to know. "'It was a spaceport,' Harkeman told him. It could be one again. And we'd need a shipyard, capable of any kind of heavy repair work. Capable of building a complete ship, in fact. I never saw a ship come into a Viking base-planet with any kind of a cargo worth dickering over that hadn't taken some damage in getting it. Prince Victor of Zutchittel makes a good half of his money on ship repairs, and so do Nicky Gratham on Jiganoth, and the Everards on Hoth. And engine works, hyperdrive, normal space, and pseudograv, Trask added, and a steel mill, and a collapsed matter plant, and robotic equipment works, and... "'Oh, that's out of all reason,' Valkenhayn cried. "'It would take twenty trips with a ship the size of this one to get all that stuff here. And how'd we ever be able to pay for it?' "'That's the sort of base Duke Angus of Wardshaven planned. The Enterprise, practically a duplicate of the Nemesis, carried everything that would be needed to get it started, when she was pirated.' "'When she was—' "'Now you're going to have to tell the gentleman the truth,' Harkeman chuckled. I intend to he laid his cigar down, sipped some of his brandy, and explained about Duke Angus' Tanneth Adventure. It was part of a larger plan. Angus wanted to gain economic supremacy for Wardshaven to forward his political ambitions. It was, however, an entirely practical business proposition. I was opposed to it because I thought it would be too good a proposition for Tanneth and work to the disadvantage of the home planet in the end. He told them about the enterprise and the cargo of industrial and construction equipment she carried, and then told them how Andre Dunnan had pirated her. That wouldn't have annoyed me at all. I had no money invested in the project. What did annoy me, to put it mildly, was that just before he took the ship out, Dunnan shot up my wedding, wounded me and my father-in-law, and killed the lady to whom I had been married for less than half an hour. I fitted out this ship at my own expense, took on Captain Harkeman, who had been left without a command when the Enterprise was pirated, and came out here to hunt Dunnan down and kill him. I believe that I can do that best by establishing a base on Tanith myself. The base will have to be operated at a profit, or it can't be operated at all." He picked up the cigar again and puffed slowly. I am inviting you, gentlemen, to join me as partners." "'Well, you still haven't told us how we're going to get the money to finance it,' Spasso insisted. "'The Duke of Wardshaven and the others who invested in the original Tanith adventure will put it up. It's the only way they can recover what they lost on the Enterprise.' "'But then this Duke of Wardshaven will be running it, not us,' Vulcan objected. The Duke of Wardshaven, Harkeman reminded him, is on Graham. We are here on Tanith. There are three thousand light-years between. That seemed a satisfactory answer. Spasso, however, wanted to know who would run things here on Tanith. We'll have to hold a meeting of all three crews, he began. We will do nothing of the kind, Trask told him. I will be running things here on Tanith. You people may allow your orders to be debated and voted on, but I don't. You will inform your respective crews to that effect. Any orders you give them in my name will be obeyed without argument. I don't know how the men will take that," Vulcan Hain said. I know how they'll take it if they're smart, Harkeman told him, and I know what'll happen if they aren't. I know how you've been running your ships or how your ship's crews have been running you. Well, we don't do it that way. Lucas Trask is owner, and I'm captain. I obey his orders on what's to be done, and everybody else obeys mine on how to do it.' Spasso looked at Valkenhayn, then shrugged. "'That's how the man wants it, Boak. You want to give him an argument, I don't.' "'The first order,' Trask said, "'is that these people you have working here are to be paid.' They are not to be beaten by these plug-uglies you have guarding them. If any of them want to leave, they may do so. They will be given presents and furnished transportation home. Those who wish to stay will be issued rations, furnished with clothing and bedding and so on as they need it, and paid wages. We'll work out some kind of a pay-token system and set up a commissary where they can buy things. Disks of plastic or titanium or something, stamped and uncounterfeitable, Get Alvin Carford to see about that. Organize work-gangs, and promote the best and most intelligent to foreman. And those guards could be taken in hand by some ground-fighter sergeant and given sword-world weapons and tactical training. Use them to train others. They'd need a sepoy army of some sort. Even the best of good will is no substitute for armed force, conspicuously displayed and unhesitatingly used when necessary." And there'll be no more of this raiding villages for food or anything else. We will pay for anything we get from any of the locals.' "'We'll have trouble about that,' Valkenhayn predicted. "'Our men think anything a local has belongs to anybody who can take it.' "'So do I,' Harkaman said. "'On a planet I'm raiding, this is our planet, and our locals. We don't raid our own planet or our own people.' You'll just have to teach them that. End of chapter 9